found it a very a privilege to be able to stand up here and minister the word. I also realize it is a great responsibility on my part, and I thank the pastors for allowing me this opportunity uh, to share God's word. I am a little upset with Pastor Stringer because he has chosen, uh, he has used some of my thunder, uh, but I will, I will forgive him. Let's all ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we're thankful that you've given to us the written word, which re reveals to us the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we open the scriptures, I pray that we would take it very, very seriously. I pray that each heart here would be open to receive what you have for them, I pray, Father, that needs would be met. Those who are going through deep waters, those that perhaps have not yet come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that this might even be their day of salvation. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing now upon the ministry of your word. I ask it all in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. If you cannot hear me, please put up your hand. One of the things I, of course, I have a little problem with these here, but it's very frustrating when somebody speaks and you can't hear them. So if you can't hear me, please just put up your hand and I'll try to talk a little louder. In fact, uh, is it Friday we... I met a, we met another couple up in Concord, and I, I had my hearing aids in, and I thought I was speaking loud enough. And even my wife, who has super sensitive ears, was, what did you say? So I finally, I took them out so that I, anyways. <laughs> in the bulletin, the title for the message is Ministering Out of Life's Experiences, I have, on, I've, I have on my paper here, preaching from experience. I believe it's very important as we minister, that we minister not simply theory, but we minister out of the, uh, our life's experiences. And what do I mean? By that. Well, the first law of teaching is that a teacher must know that which he teaches. It must come from a life of experience. Now, if I were to teach you automobile, automobile mechanics, I couldn't do it because I'm not a mechanic. In order to be taught automobile mechanics, you, you must be a mechanic. You must be experienced. And the same in the Christian life. That's why God calls mature people into the ministry. What I want you to, uh, 
to be aware of when you study particularly the epistles that you'll find that the writers of the epistle John, uh, uh, Paul, and Peter that you'll sense that they're writing out of experience and this is important and I'll try to reinforce that uh, as we go along. And so we're going to take, I'm going to take some time just making a brief survey of Peter as he walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see the things that he did. I want you to see his failures. Because that had a, I believe, had a profound effect upon Peter's ministry after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so I would like, first of all, to open to the Gospel of of John. Chapter 1. John the Baptist has begun his ministry. And I believe that as... John the Baptist was preaching. Andrew, Peter's brother, was there because it says in the context here that he was a disciple of John the Baptist. I'm just going to point out a few verses in verse 29 of chapter 1. Notice what John the Baptist said. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. I'm suggesting that Andrew was there to hear him. Then in verse 34, And I saw, John says, and bear record that this is the Son of God. Now this is what Andrew heard from John the Baptist. The next day, verse 35, John stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus, he walked with... As he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they noticed they followed Jesus. And one of them was Andrew. Then Jesus turned and saw them falling and said unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi which is saying by interpreting, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And notice, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Now, Simon Peter was not a stone at this point. But at this point, both Andrew, I believe both Andrew and Peter were convinced concerning the person of Jesus Christ. He was the Messiah. 
He was the Son of God, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Then turn to Matthew chapter 4, because I believe this follows John chapter 1, verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. The reason they followed him is because they knew who he was. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Just giving you just a brief overview. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And also further down, he says, and uh, they were to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that had to be a tremendous experience for these, for Peter and Andrew and the rest of them to be able to go forth and to heal the sick. God gave him that power. Heal the sick, raise the dead, preach the gospel of the kingdom. That had to have a profound effect on Peter's future ministry. Chapter 14. Now remember what he had already done, gone out and preached the gospel, healed the sick, raised the dead. Apparently we're not told exactly if they did, but he gave him that power. But in this occasion, chapter 14, beginning in verse 18. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 21. It's, they, uh, there was the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus sent them away, and they went on to the Sea of Galilee. In verse 24, the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And then Peter says, answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And so... Peter steps out on the out of the boat and starts to walk on the water. Now, if I had been there, I would have probably complimented Peter for his faith. But not so the Lord Jesus. When Peter saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said to him, O thou of little faith, 
Wherefore didst thou doubt? I wonder how many times the Lord would say the same to you and I. O thou of little faith, why didst thou doubt? Chapter 16, verse 21. And the pastor Stringer mentioned this in the adult class. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. With all that Jesus said concerning his, his death and his resurrection, they did not understand. The reason is because they did not have the knowledge. And so he, it, Peter rebukes him, and Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. How would you like somebody to say that to you? Peter was being used of the devil. He didn't realize it. Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And then in chapter 17, we won't turn to it, but Peter witnesses the transfiguration of our Lord. They saw him in his glorified state. Then in chapter 26, when they observed the Lord's Supper on the, on the day of Passover, and Jesus said, this is, when he took the bread, he said, this is my body which is given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. He did not have a clue as to its significance. And we go to the, uh, uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed and he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Still, the disciples, and Peter in particular, had no clue as to what was happening. They fell asleep. And then, when Judas came with a great company of men, I don't really know how exactly how many, but there was a, there were a large company of men. And Peter cut off the servant of the high priest. He cut off his ear. He was going to defend his Lord. He was going to prevent him from going to the cross. Okay. And then the last thing about Peter. Remember, as Jesus was be being tried, Peter, as, as Jesus foretold him, he denied his Lord three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly because he denied knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I believe this had a tremendous impact upon Peter's ministry after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you want to keep these things in mind as you read 1st and 2nd Peter. <clears throat> now, Peter learned a very valuable lesson, a lesson that you and I need to learn. And that is not to trust in the arm of the flesh, for the flesh will always fail you. I want to encourage you. I don't know, most of you, I don't know much about you. Those, uh, some of you I know a little bit. And I, but I am sure of this. Since you have, you have been saved, I am sure that you have failed the Lord sometime. I know I have. But do not allow your failures to drive you to, dis to despondency, to, to give up and say, what is the use? I'm just a failure. And I believe sometimes Christians do that. Let me remind you of Abraham. Abraham was called of God. He gave him that great promise. In Genesis chapter 12. Twice, Abraham lied concerning his wife to save his own neck, he thought not realizing that he was absolutely secure in the hands of God. God gave him a promise. Those promises had to be realized. Nobody could touch Abraham, certainly until those promises would be realized. And then at Sarah's suggestion, he took Hagar's as her handmaid as his wife, and he had a child, Ishmael, by Hagar. A tremendous failure on the part of Abraham. Yes, he failed. But Abraham continued on with the Lord. And when he had Isaac, the son of promise, I believe it is then that he realized that God says what he means, means what he says, and he will do what he says. And so Abraham, I believe at that point, had absolute faith and confidence in God. And when God told him to offer up Isaac, his only son, by faith, and I believe without hesitation, I know Tozer right, writes different, said Abraham had a great struggle. The Bible doesn't tell us that, as reading into it. It tells us that he went 
And he said to to the servants that he would they would return. Why did he say that? Because he knew if he offered up his only son, according to Hebrews chapter 11, that God would raise him from the dead. Because God had made a promise that the promises would be realized through Isaac. So God would have to raise him from the dead. You see how God brought him along to that place where he had complete confidence and trust in him. That is what God is seeking to do in your life and in my life. He knows we're going to fail. Uh, a few weeks ago, we, we, we were down to visit our daughter in Pennsylvania, and we went to her church. And uh, my wife and I, we went into the adult class, and he was uh, teaching on Samson and all of Samson's failures. Very carnal, very fleshly man. He he was he, he had an eye for the for the uh, Philistine women. I wanted to point out to him near the end of the class. I guess he saw my hand, anyways. I wanted to remind him. That Samson is in the faith hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Samson sacrificed himself. And by it he slew more Philistines when he died than while he was alive. This does not justify his failures, but I simply want to point out, perhaps you look at yourself as a failure as a Christian. Folks, there's hope for you. There's hope. Allow the Spirit of God to pick you up and to move you on by faith. Well, that takes us. Well, I, I have another thing I, w- I would like to, to mention concerning the Old Testament. There are two statements made, one in Romans, one in Corinthians. The, it says this, the Old Testament was written for our... What? I can't hear you. It's written for our learning. Romans 15.4. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it is written for our admonition that we don't follow, go the way of the Israelites. It is not written for us to stand in condemnation of those Old Testament believers who failed. I had a, a pastor friend and very critical of Jacob. You know what the Bible says? God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is also mentioned in the Hall of Fame. Yes, he had his failures. If I am going to condemn anybody, it has to be me first. My failures. 
easy to stand up and condemn others. Now, I, I, I've said this before. I'm here twice by the grace of God. He saved me by his grace and he restored me by his grace. Well, let's turn to, uh, to Peter. First of all, I want to mention this here concerning First, first Peter. In First Peter, we find one of the emphasis in there. P Peter is dealing with the external enemies of the cross of Christ and the fiery trials that believers will face. And he encourages us, admonishes the believers as babes in Christ, because that's who he was writing to. He said, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word of it, that ye may grow. Listen, in order to face the fiery trials, and folks, I believe it's coming. The way things are going in this country, I believe we're going to face it soon. In order to face it with courage, with conviction, you're going to have to grow in grace. Otherwise, you will not be able to stand. In 2 Peter, Peter is concerned with the dangers that we face from within through false teachers. And so if you would turn to 2 Peter. I want to point out in chapter 2 and verse 3. Notice what it says. And this will emphasize the importance of us growing in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Who is you? He is writing to believers, those of like precious faith. And it's sad to say that so many Christians are being made merchandise of by others. Notice uh, verse 14. In the middle of the verse, it says, Beguiling unstable souls. And there are so many Christians who are unstable. Why is it that so many are following men? Oh, boy. They think it's wonderful. Maybe the charismatic movement. It may be somebody like Hybels or somebody other following men. Oh, they're successful. Look at their ministries. They're growing by leaps and bounds. It must be right. And then if we would look at verse 17 of chapter 3. He says, ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also be being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your steadfastness. He doesn't say it because it won't happen. He says, he says it because it can 
very well happen. And that, and notice he closes with, but grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if you know the truth, you will know the error. You don't have to read about all the stuff that's going on. When you come across it, you'll know it is not true because you know the truth. Well, let's look at 2 Peter beginning in verse 1. Now, if you're like me, sometimes we simply read the first few verses, just read them over, you know. It's the same thing in all of the epistles, pretty much. And we skip over them. But I want to spend time on these two verses. Notice Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want you to note something, and it's been mentioned here. Servant. Servant, first of all. Apostleship comes afterwards. A servant, then a pastor. A servant, then a teacher. You must be a servant. Otherwise, as far as God is concerned, you are disqualified. Pastor Stringer spoke of this in the adult class in Matthew chapter 20. This will be a refresher for those that were in the class. I'm not going to read the whole context. But in verse 20, they came, then came to Jesus, him, the, ma the, the mother of Zebedee's children with their sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said to her, what wilt thou? She said, I grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. And dropping down to verse 25, Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. Unfortunately, our government was established to serve the people of the United States. Unfortunately, it has turned around and they are serving themselves and not we the people of the United States. It's a sad day in America. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever shall be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever shall be chief among you, let him be your servant. You see how God turns things around. The world puts a lead up. He and the people are to serve him. They are to bow down to him. Not so with God. We must be servants to those 
to whom we minister. God will have it no other way. My wife's sister was attending a, a Baptist church down in Maryland. And uh, from what she told us, he said, it's, he said, it is my way or the highway. After he just about destroyed the church, it was the highway. He did not have a servant's heart. He did not belong in the ministry. In Philippians, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Our Lord Jesus Christ came to be a servant. And if we are, belong to him, we are to be servants. We are to be serving one another. Now notice the recipients of the letter. Now this is very important. Whenever you read a letter, an epistle, you want to be sure who it is written to because it will affect your interpretation of that letter. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who have obtained like precious faith through the righteousness of God. There are two truths to be noted, I believe, in this here. First of all, that God is absolutely righteous in forgiving our sins. Now, unfortunately, our judicial system is in terrible, terrible shape. Just this week I read, I think it was a, a former warden, he's retired now, and uh, as a warden he had to execute some criminals. And this is bothering him now. And he is saying that we should eliminate the death penalty. When a person murders another one, there should be no question. His life should be taken according to the word of God. <clears throat> you see, we deserve the death penalty. The wages of sin is death. God in his marvelous love and his mercy and his grace, he sent his beloved son into this world 
And there as he hung on that cross, the Father put our sins upon him. Have you stopped how many sins you've committed? You couldn't count them. And they were all placed upon him. And when he died, he paid the penalty that satisfied the justice of God. There's no other way. Oh, when the day that I accepted Jesus Christ, the day that you accepted Jesus Christ, your sins were forgiven. Totally forgiven. Now you try to think of me. Here is a line. It's on a graph. There's a line. Zero. It's zero. God is up here, a plus righteousness, a perfect righteousness. The sinner is down here with a minus righteousness, and it's so, it, it's so minus, there's no hope of ever digging oneself out. Impossible. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. When Christ died, our sins were forgiven. This put us on zero, without unrighteousness, but without righteousness. But God did something else. He didn't leave us at zero. His righteousness, God's righteousness, was put to our account. So we stand perfectly righteous in God's eyes. Positionally. This is an absolutely marvelous and wonderful truth. If you're not here without, uh, if you're here without Christ, it matters not how much material goods you, you might have. You may have a million dollar home, two or three cars in the garage, and what have you. You are a very, very poor, poor person. In reality, you have nothing. I don't have much. I have a car that was given to me. I praise God for it. At this point, we are living, my wife and I are living with my sister. So we have, essentially, we have a bedroom that is out. But you know something? I am the richest person on the face of the earth. If you have Christ, you are the richest person on the face of this earth. Because you have Jesus Christ. You have eternal life. What I want you to see, and, and you know, sometimes we take this whole matter for granted. Oh, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. 
Yeah. Oh, I wish we would spend time in the word of God and simply meditating on what we are, what we have in Christ. And then in verse 2, Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied. He's the only one, Paul doesn't say that, he says grace and peace, but Peter says grace and peace be multiplied. How? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. First of all, there is that positional grace which we have been mentioning. I want to, again, the, it, uh, I, I want to emphasize the positional grace that we have. The grace of God that bringeth salvation, Titus 2.11. With salvation, God blesses us with all spiritual blessings. Come, let's turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And I haven't been in there for a while, and this week I went through there. And in this Bible and another Bible, I, am, I underlined what we have in Christ. And, it was, and I've preached through Ephesians, but it was a tremendous blessing just to go over these things. If you haven't underlined these things in your Bible I'd encourage you to do it. Notice verse 3. We are chosen, or he has blessed us, with all spiritual blessings. That's why we are multi-billionaires. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Verse 4. He has chosen us in Christ. Notice it everywhere it says in Christ and so on. Predestinated us unto the adoption of children or the son placement, what? By Jesus Christ. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Verse 10, to gather together in one all things in Christ. Verse 11, being predestinated. Verse, uh, verse 13, Number one, sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment. And then you go into chapter 2. In verse 5, quickened us, made us alive. Verse 6, raised us up, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Now, Verse 8 will have more meaning if you keep those, these things in mind. Notice, for by grace are ye saved. All that we, I just ran down through is the grace of God. Hey. By grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourself. Notice, it's a work of God. Positional truth. God has so blessed us. We ought never to get over the fact 
of what he has done for us. There is also grace that he gives for living. It's all there available for us. The problem is we do not know that it is available. Because notice what Peter said. Grace and peace be multiplied. How? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. So we have to know him. We have to know God. It's through the knowledge of him. And if we are ignorant, how can we lay hold of that grace? Remember what Hebrews says? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain uh, uh, mercy and grace to help in time of need. I want to say this. I know some of you are going through some deep waters. I understand that. But God's grace will meet every need that you have. The problem with you and I is we do not avail ourselves of that grace. I'm going to quickly turn to 2 Corinthians. And you note in 2 Corinthians that he is the God of uh, well, let me read it. Verse 3, Blessed be, the, be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our trials and all of our tribulations. He understands what we're going through. He understands. And he is there to meet our every need. You know something? I had a wonderful experience. Oh, be careful about experience. Uh, maybe I should have rephrased it. But when we were down visiting Mary, my wife's sister, down in West Virginia, we went to visit her sister-in-law in the nursing home. And in, this, in the next bed was this woman, and I really didn't pay too much attention. I... You know, I saw her lying there and so forth. And through the conversation, I guess she found out some, something about it. Anyways, as we were leaving, she, she spoke to us. And I spent about five, ten minutes, I don't know, talking with her. She had lost both of her legs. And she told me that she never shed one tear. I had a wonderful, wonderful conversation with that lady. And I intend to write her a letter. But anyways, 
the grace of God. She laid a hold of God's grace and she found she finds it sufficient in her need. Notice in uh, uh, verse 9 of, of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Why is God putting you through what he is putting you? Huh? Why? He wants to bring you to the end of yourself. We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. That's what he's trying to do with you and I, so that we simply trust him. Chapter 3, verse, 50, verse 5. I would encourage you to read 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2nd, uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians. Notice, verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That's why Paul could say it is no longer I, but it is Christ. And remember at the end of this epistle when Paul, when Paul had this thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times that God would remove it. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And what did, what did Paul say? I most gladly will... Uh, I, I have to turn it, I... See, I get, I get uh, stage fright and my memory disappears. Most gladly there will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Okay. I shared this with some of you, I know. When I was having a very difficult time in my life, this is while I was in Bible school. And I had come home and I was flying back to school from Boston to Washington. And I opened my Bible and I began in, in the Psalm, Psalm 1. I read Psalm 1. Psalm 2, Psalm 3, all the way to Psalm 18. And I was reading through Psalm 18, and I came to verse 32, and I read this. It is God who girdeth thee with strength and maketh my way perfect. I read that verse, and the cloud just lifted off of me.
Whatever your need is, he is there to meet that need. One of the great deficiencies in the church of Jesus Christ, I believe today, is that we do not know him. We know about him, maybe, but we don't know him. Oh, I would encourage you as you open your Bible, get to know him. Remember, remember Job? After Job had made all of his complaints and had been accused by his friends and so forth, Job went through things that you and I will never face. And God simply revealed to Job who he is. Uh, that, that's not the way to do things, is it? Yeah, we need to know who he is. What did Job say? He said, when God had finished, he said, I abhor myself in dust and ashes. He said, I have heard thee with the hearing of my ears, but now I see thee. And this is what we need. Uh, this is what took place in Peter's life. Now he saw him. And that's why Peter could write those two letters as he did. If you are without Jesus Christ here this morning, may I fully recommend him to you. If you come to him by simple faith, as the Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He didn't give him a lot of theology. He just said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. God is true to his word. He will save you. As he saved me back in 1964, and he has kept me. Oh, he has spanked me a few times. But he is faithful. Love him. Serve him. I'm not going to ask you to sing this song because, but this was taught to us at an IFCA meeting at Fellowship Bible Church when it was in over there in North Andover. By Pastor Halverson, Jesus Christ is made to be all I need, all I need. He alone is all my plea. But I'd like us to sing, Isn't He Wonderful? Can we sing that together? Isn't He wonderful, wonderful, wonderful? Isn't Jesus my Lord wonderful? Eyes have seen, ears have heard, it's recorded in God's word. Isn't Jesus, my Lord, wonderful, 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 Jesus is to me. Counselor, Prince of Peace, 
mighty God is he, saving me, keeping me from all sin and shame. Wonderful is my Redeemer, praise his name, precious name. Oh, how sweet hope of earth and joy of heaven. Precious name, oh how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness to us. Thank you for redeeming us and keeping us. And we thank you, Father, for the blessed hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask your blessing upon the rest of this day, upon our fellowship to follow, and for the one who'll be ministering in the service in the afternoon. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.